0: Welcome to a Heritage Christian Center podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. All right, let's get right into this. Revelation chapter 2. If you're like, if you're the type that's following actual Bible, if um if you're broadcasting online and you're watching right now, um you're welcome and um to be here with us. It's an op- it's a great opportunity for me to open the scripture for you. Um anytime I do that, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that's your experience uh, wherever you're watching this, and of obviously uh, from my family here in Bundaberg um, here tonight live. Um afterwards, we do have our resource table set up, um and uh, that's going out there. If you could do me a big favor, though, okay? If you don't want anything, God bless. Uh, We'll see you next year at some point. Um, If you know you're going to grab something, would you please do so in the first five minutes? The reason is I have to drive back to Brisbane tonight, all right? So if you could help me, because I got to pack that down and just, you know, the the sooner the better. I'm not anti-social anyway. I've been coming here for 16 years. You know I'm not a full of nonsense American or anything. I just, I love you, but yeah, if you could help me do that, that'd be great. Now, I want to open the scripture tonight, and I I want you to consider, look, you you chose to come back on Sunday night, I want you to take a deep breath, and I want you just to go, okay, for the next 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes, I'm going to totally listen to this with an open mind and ask the Spirit of God, what do you have for me in this? If I, I could tell you tonight will make more sense if you had heard Friday, Saturday, and this morning. That said, you don't need to have heard that to understand what we're going to talk about tonight, okay? If I, if I could package these four meetings together into one teaching, it would be called, please church, listen to me <laughs> and consider consider the images we've created around the word Christian. And so I, I've been getting asked a lot, you know, Shane, the COVID thing seems to be winding down. And, um, where's the church go from here? And I, I won't bore you with all the details of it, but... I was listening to a, um, a, a PhD in social anthropology and he was so fascinating. He went back through the last seven global pandemics in the world. He went all the way back to 536 AD, which is historically unanimously agreed upon as the worst year to have ever been alive, okay? Not 2020, not 2021, 536 AD. The reason is, is because a volcano exploded over Iceland before there was a map to tell anybody where Iceland was and a cloud of volcanic dust made the sky in Europe go dark for 18 months. And it caused a famine throughout Europe because there was no sunlight. And of course, when that happens, people start thinking, oh, right, can you imagine, can you imagine experiencing that with no radars, no modern communication, no anything? And he said, when that happens, uh, there's always a rise of four voices. The religious zealots who think God's destroying people, the conspiracy theorists who think there's 1% of people controlling the whole thing, the anti-government people, and then the voice of the common good. And then as the pandemics go away... There's always, it always follows the same pattern. And this is is where I'm going with this. Always, in the last seven pandemics, there is a three-year rush back to being regrounded in spirituality, followed by a three-year rise of consumer confidence where people spend all their money at once, followed by a correction. So the last global pandemic, was 1918, was the Spanish flu. Um, after it wound down, there was a three-year global grounding in spirituality, revivals everywhere in the early 20s. Then there was a rise of consumer confidence called the Roaring 20s. And then there was a correction called the Great Depression. Okay, so what's important to me is that three-year rush back to spirituality. What that means is, is that we have a once-in-a-hundred-year opportunity, which means once-in-a-lifetime We have a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where people from everywhere are going to want to be regrounded in faith, and this is a golden opportunity not for us to do a soft re-entry back into the situation, but actually put the throttle to the ground and and go, wait a minute, but before we do that, we've got to address language and how we're presenting. The prayer for the weekend is, Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I have presented you. And so, I, I want to look at um, this letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation, and I want us to ask ourselves uh, if we can find ourselves in it. I don't think it's going to be very hard, <laughs> or I wouldn't have chosen it. Um, I, this is so relevant. If you could bring that first slide. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. So, if you're a linear learner, tonight's message is going to have three parts. The three parts are called the big story the small story, your story. The big story, the small story, your story. So if you're a note taker, let's start with the big story. Next slide. So the big story is about a guy named John, and he's been exiled on the island of Patmos by a Caesar named Domitian. Uh, folklore and historical myth tells us at least part of this was true. You don't know how much is true, but that the Roman Empire tried to boil John in oil. They put him in a vat of boiling oil, and he survived it. And they were reticent to try to, uh, to do that again. The idea is, is that if you survive a government-mandated execution twice, people are going to think God's on your side. So Caesar's like, get rid of this guy, get him on the island of Patmos. So he gets him on the island of Patmos, and John writes uh, this book called Revelation which is theopoetic apocalyptic satire that's written in a chiastic structure, okay? You can't interpret theopoetic apocalyptic satire written in a chiastic structure as a linear line and expect to get it right. If you know what I'm talking about, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. So here's the thing, all right? So John writes as a centerpiece of this literature. He writes to seven churches in a specific order. Don't read into the order, Let me tell you what the order was. It was the mail route of the day. That's all it was, okay? So it was the mail route. It was the order of which this circular letter would have been distributed. And what John is doing is he's encouraging a real group of people at a real place, at a real time, that were real people. And in this sense, this part of Revelation, I don't care how you read Revelation. You're my brother, you're my sister, I love you. I would never make an issue of it. But these letters to these seven churches are relevant to today in the sense that we should find ourselves in it and apply it. But make no mistake about it, John's writing to real people at a real place, at a real time, in a real city. And what's moving to me is John's in his 70s, and he's been following Jesus since he's a teenager. And I think we need to stop and think about this. 60 years after Jesus has ascended, he's still speaking into people's right Now, what you're going to, and this is so important for us, that we never relegate Jesus to a historical figure in the past, but rather somebody that's speaking into our right now. Tonight we're going to look at Ephesus, but there's seven of these churches. There's Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, there's Laodicea, and I've done this for each one of them, and it's out there on that table called The letter says seven churches. It's the third part of my Revelation series. And you'd wanna get it because I'm telling you, it's entertaining, but it also helps us see, wait a minute, each of these letters, has it was obvious to the people reading the letter that Jesus knew them. He knew their circumstance. He was speaking specifically into something they were dealing with. Now, it follows a certain pattern. Next slide. So in the pattern, he commends them for what they're doing that brings life. He corrects them for what they're doing that brings death. And then he always offers restoration for the consenting wise. So he goes, okay, this I have for you. This, you got to cut that stuff out. This is bringing death. Nonetheless, I still offer consenting love to restore you. Even in Laodicea, where he says, when I look at how you think about your material wealth, it makes me want to puke, okay? Even them, if you keep reading, he says, nonetheless, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody wants to open the door, I wanna come in and have a meal and let's make this thing right. So he commends them for what they're doing good. He corrects them for what they're doing not so good. And then he offers restoration. We're gonna get to that in just a second. Next slide. Let's talk about the big story. So Ephesus was was very important. Think New York, Hong Kong, Singapore of the day. Paul started a church there. It became very, very big. We'll talk about that in a second. And then he he left it to Timothy to run. The central marketplace in in the Ephesus was called the Agora. And I don't mean the center marketplace of Ephesus. I mean the center marketplace of the entire world. World. The reason is, is Ephesus was easily accessible by land or by sea. So whether you came from the east or the west, it was the place where you could come, buy, sell, and trade, and then go back and resell it at a profit, which led to an amazing opportunity for Caesar. Uh, next slide. So Domitian made a policy. Before you could buy and sell, you had to give an offering of money and incense to the gods, and in particular, Caesar. The question is, how did you know... Who did it and who didn't? What they did, because remember, Ephesus, they, they need each other. Ephesus to thrive needs Caesar's support, and Caesar to thrive, Caesar thrives better when Ephesus is thriving, right? And so what Ephesus did is they built these churches to honor Caesar, and outside of these centers of honor to worship Caesar, they would every morning kill a bull. And so they would kill a bull. And of course, when they killed the bull, they would then burn the bull, which would turn into ashes. It was called the ashes of the red heifer. And what they would do is they would take the ashes of the sacrifice to Caesar, and they would mix it with this paste. So whether you're coming from the east or whether you're coming from the west, before you could buy and sell in the Agora, you had to first come into these centers for the worship of Caesar and offer your offering to Domitian just for the divine privilege of having a God rule you. It was basically Caesar having a toll road on the global marketplace. Like, could you imagine getting one cent for every transaction in coals today, right? You would be a multi-gazillionaire not in too long. Well, Caesar did that for the whole world. He required this offering. And so what he did is he hired acolytes. And the acolytes' job was, witnesses, the acolytes' job was to watch people from everywhere give their offering. And then they would take the paste and the ashes of the sacrifice to Caesar, and they would rub it would rub it into their forehand or into their forehead and that would tell the managers of the Agora, these people have done their duty and they can now buy and sell. And if you wouldn't take that mark, then you could not buy and sell. Here was the Roman empire in one statement. One world government, one world leader, one world currency who was manipulating the one world currency to oppress people who would not call him God, right? And he did that by making people take marks before they could buy and sell. So the Jews hated this, and they came up with a nickname for Domitian. They called him the beast who comes from land and sea. So from 70 AD to 92 AD in the Roman Empire, before you could buy and sell, you first had to take the mark of the, you could be more confident, the mark of the, yes, yes. So, next slide. So Christians had a problem with this. They were conflicted about it. And the ethic was pretty simple. Two questions. One, do we offend Jesus by offering the honor to Caesar and the gods? Like, okay, we need to live. In order to live, we gotta make the offering. We gotta take the mark, right? So that we could buy and sell. Otherwise, we get driven into underground marketplaces where we're paying four and five times too much for stuff. Um, do, do we offend Jesus by doing this? Or, and you could understand this logic. Seriously, it's not hard to get to this second ethic. Since the gods aren't real anyway, can we just do it as an empty gesture so that we can live? Like, is it really that big of a deal? And there was a group of people who I'm sure were sincere. They were called the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were like this group of people that said, look, we think Jesus will understand this. We're going to live, bro. And we're going to take that mark. And we're going to do whatever we got to do to live. And then there was another group of people who said, no, because there's other things going on. So there was this massive ethical dilemma that we can all sort of understand that was going on back then. Next slide. So Domitian, let's talk about him for a second. Domitian was Caesar at the time of writing in exile. And make no mistake about it, he loved Ephesus. Any thought that you've ever had that the Caesars were tormenting the Ephesians? No, 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 no. Caesar needed Ephesus to win. And Ephesus needed Caesar to win. So the Ephesians built a temple to Domitian in order to get more government benefits. Like It was almost like, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. So the big story is Caesar, Domitian, Rome, one world currency, Marx, and he did all kinds of stuff that will be familiar in the book of Revelation. Like, like every two years, he, um, this guy was such a narcissist, every two years, he instituted an Olympic-style games in the capital city, Rome, um, that was called the Domitian Games. I know he named it after himself, and it was in the Colosseum, and t- tell me where you've heard this before. This will sound pretty familiar. So, um... So what he did to show his dominance over the empire is he divided the empire into 12 districts, and he demanded that all 12 districts send two delegates to the capital city in order to compete in this um, series of games that were basically fights to the death for young people, right? And so you had 24 delegates sent to this games uh, for the entertainment. And oh, by the way, the only uh, district that was absolved from sending delegates was the capital city, and the capital city people uh, were given special robes, white robes and gold crowns uh, to come and watch this, uh, because Domitian wanted to create the greatest choir ever created to sing his praises. Um, and, and actually, the word they were forced to say is worthy. It was axios, axios, that's worthy. Worthy are you, O Domitian, O son of God. For you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God. For you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. And at the end of the song, they would cast down their golden crowns. Think about think about your Roman Empire movie, Caesar standing there like this, and they're throwing their crowns at, at, at his feet. Can, can, oh, by the way, Domitian was such a narcissist, he paid 24 people to follow him around and tell him how awesome he was. Can, can you see in Revelation chapter 4 where John goes, and I saw the four and twenty elders sitting around the throne, and we were casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea, but we were singing a new song. In other words, I've seen how this ends, and Domitian doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Keep in their head. Keep your head up. You're strong, like it's th- this kind of like this is in your this this isn't about predicting vaccines this is about, <laughs> this is an in your face confrontation to an empire that was just oppressing the entire world and Ephesus was the economic center of it so the big story was wrong the specific when i say small story i just i don't mean less important i mean specific the small story is ephesus ephesus it's unbelievable. Next slide. Next one. So he demanded people call him Lord and God. Domitian, they, they've actually, historians have found documents of um, where even his wife, he, before he would answer her, she, he made her call him my lord and my god <laughs> like this guy's a winner hey the the temple's architecture was built to show that domitian's lordship was supported by the gods is it was all this clever like outside of ephesus was this twi- was this huge pantheon of the gods and then what domitian did was he put co- pillars up. And on top of the pantheon of the gods, he put a roof. And then over the top of the roof, he put a 50-foot statue of himself, right? And he said, see, not only am I the king of kings, I'm the lord of lords. And if I wasn't the god of all gods, those gods would have stopped me. And of course, that was very, very convincing to most of the world. But the Jews were like, no, but they're just statues, right? So there's there's this thing. Next slide. So what you would see from land or by sea was Domitian's temple dominated the skyline. Total height of 50-foot high, which which it, today is small, but back then, big. And Domitian, his fist of dominance, extending out by land or by sea. But Do- Domitian had, had a problem in Ephesus. Check, check this out, next slide. So Domitian had a son die at the age of 10. That's a problem. Think about it, because if Domitian's God, his son would be the son of, yeah, son of, son of God. It, and why is that a credibility problem? Well, think about it. If you're God you should be able to save your own son, correct? Like your son's sick, you're God, you can't heal your own son. You're not who you say you are. So Domitian has to get out in front of this, right? Now, how do you get out in front of this? Well, you gotta create a narrative that's convincing. So here's what he said. He said, I didn't, it wasn't that I couldn't save my own son. It wasn't. The gods of the sky have consulted with me and they needed my son's help holding the seven stars in place so that the world does not just wander off, right? Now, again, ridiculous, but back then, oh, okay. So how, how do you get that narrative from Spain to India? What did you do? Well, all breaking news. Today, on your phone, you might get a notification, breaking news. Back then, there's no breaking. Breaking news was on money, right? Because people didn't know what was rumor or what was, what was real, so they had a dilemma. Do we know what's real news, or do we know what's fake news? Now, we're so technologically advanced today, we'll struggle with that at all. Like, that's, that's a thing of the past. But back then, they had to wonder. And so the Roman Empire said, here's how you know if it's real. If it's on money, it's from us, because money's the thing that would somehow, and here was your job. If a new coin came into Bundaberg, you're supposed to call all of Bundaberg together for the breaking news. So Domitian has a coin minted to get out in front of this narrative. And he's on the front side of the coin, Domitian is, and his son's on the tail. Let me show you the tail side of the coin. Next slide. That's the Domitian star coin. That is Domitian's son uh, sitting on top of the world. Um, when, when, I first, when I first learned this, I thought that was Domitian, and I made fun. like It's like the Gerber baby. I, I was wrong about that. Um, it, it was about Domitian, but Domitian's head is on the front, This is Domitian's son, and starting at about 11 o'clock and reading that way, it says, Domitian, God our savior, or Domitian, God saves us. And so this, this, this son is sitting on top of the world, and if you count, he's holding the seven stars in place. So Domitian said, no, my son died, but it's because the gods of the sky needed his help holding the seven stars in place. That's Domitian. Now part of the small story, is Artemis. Next slide. So Artemis, you see, you can't rule the world just politically. You got to have a religious leader as well. Artemis was the main goddess of the region. In Ephesus, there were 14 different temples to different gods, but the main goddess was Artemis. She was known as Kibla and Diana. 127 marble pillars going around the circumference of the temple. Now, this is where I want to park for a second. The temple of Artemis functioned as the bank and it controlled who got financing and who didn't. Now I want you to think about how much power that has. Think about if it's totally within your control, and we all realize Artemis is not real, so it was in the priest of Artemis's control who got financing and who didn't. So if your plow broke and you needed financing to get another plow and you didn't have the money, today you go to A and Z. Commonwealth. And, and they are regulated by government. Affi- There's no regulation here. These people controlled the money. So if you needed money, they would say, yeah, 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 we'll give you the money, but you're going to have to agree to let a higher class person debase you in the temple of Artemis just as an act of worship uh, to her. She, she cornered the market on three things, finance, food, and fertility. So if you wanted a baby... Uh, you would first, in a world where half of women and half of babies died in childbirth, you would go to Artemis and you would give an offering and say, please save me. Can you see why Paul said things like, in Christ, women will be saved through childbirth, right? This wasn't holding women down, like the only thing a woman's good for. Right? No, this was this was this this, was this world. Let me show you a picture of Artemis. I, we talked about her a little bit on Saturday night. That's Artemis there. I, I, I don't want to be rude in any way, but I mean... It's obvious she has lots of nourishment, right? Because let's uh, let's just be honest, even when they're 3,500 years old and made of stone, a 20-breasted woman is frankly awesome, right? So what you would do if you needed money, please, Artemis, be kind. If you needed fertility, if you needed food, there's one scene from history where there was a famine in a place called Sardis And they assumed they offended her. So they brought more money, no food. More money, they couldn't find food. More money, they couldn't find food. And so the priest of Artemis said, well, she's not convinced that the men of Sardis are are loyal to her. So what the men of Sardis did is they went to the temple of Artemis and they took psychedelic medicine and they got drunk. And in a a religious frenzy, they showed her that they were loyal to her by self-castrating and then they offered their testicles on the altar to Kibla, Artemis, and said, please, Artemis, please be kind to us and give us food. By the way, in 1908, archaeologists found the altar that this happened on. It is now a tourist attraction in modern-day Turkey. So if you're ever on a tourist tour of modern-day Turkey and you come across the altar to Artemis, don't sit on it. It, it has lots of history. Just, I, I, just, I, I want to stop right here and, and, and point something out. Okay, so Paul... Just might it be relevant, just maybe, that she was the goddess in charge of the region when Paul said, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man? Might that not be holding down all women everywhere, but rather might that be setting men free from the horrible regime that was run by her? That's first. Second, Paul started a church of Jesus Christ across the street from her and it thrived. That's not hard to understand. I mean, that would thrive, right? Here was Paul's message. Hey, everybody, I serve a God that loves you just because. He'll feed you just because. He'll protect you just because. He'll save you in childbirth just because. And everybody gets to keep all their bits intact. Come with me, right? That's an easy message. It worked so well that the priest of Artemis panicked and had Paul arrested. How do we know that? Because it's written down in the Bible. In Acts 19... They dragged Paul in front of a pagan judge, and this is what it says. The pagan judge says to Paul, or says to the people, what do you want me to do with him? For he has not robbed our temple. In other words, he didn't rob the bank, nor has he blasphemed our goddess not even once. (sighs) Stop. So Paul built a thriving church of Jesus Christ across the street from her, and never felt the need to say one negative thing about her. Could we do that? Could we build Christianity again in Australia without having to announce on the internet all the things we're against? These flipping leftists. And these atheists. I saw a guy the other day. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm telling you, God told me in a dream that his guts are full from the wickedness in this current world. This world? This one? Paul started a church of Jesus Christ across the street from that nonsense. Let me be blunt. Here's what was going on there. Forced, indecent assault by upper class people on lower class people, just to get basic things like financing and food. Whatever the worst thing going on in Bundaberg is tonight, it ain't that. And whatever the worst thing going on in Bundaberg is tonight, it's likely illegal and it's being done in secret. This was out in public. This was unbelievably, to Paul and John, the love of Christ was more compelling than having to be against stuff. You say, you're Stan Shane, you're Stan Palaszczuk. Palaszczuk? Are you serious? Come on, man. Here's what was happening. To get basic things like food and finance, underclassed people, had to debase themselves to indecent assault at the temple. Whatever wickedness you thought was in our world today, that was global law, legal, like no recompense at all. Next slide. She was the goddess of the hunt, food, and childbirth. The required slogan was great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine being a lampstand, a representative of Christ in that environment. It would be so unbelievably difficult. Next slide. Here was the history of Artemis. Artemis was known as the Lady of Ephesus. Here's what they said about her. She was born by descending from heaven and landing on the tree of life. They built her temple on what they said was the site of that event. Then they called the temple construction paradise. Paradise for who? The top 1% of first-class people? or the bottom seven rungs of class systems that were being debased by the upper class. Paradise for who? What a load of nonsense. What a load of crap. Like, talk about promising something you can't deliver. Paradise for who? The whole world was being debased in this temple just to get something like finance. I wanna show you a picture of something, and if you know the answer, please don't holler it out. I just want people to think for a second, next slide. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to tell you where it is. And I want you to think about what this might be. I want you to just take a second and look at this. and I'll tell you, that was the stone slab outside the back door underneath the temple to Artemis. Back door, underneath, that was the welcome mat. What do you reckon that is? So I'll tell you. There's a lot going on. There's a little map and find me things. But the obvious thing, there's a foot and a hole. If you ever go to Dream World or Disney World or Six Flags or any place like that, you're gonna ride a roller coaster. There's normally something, you gotta be this tall to ride that ride. That's what that was. In order to participate in the debasement of the underclass, you had to have a foot that was bigger than that foot and you had to have a coin to go in that hole. In other words, if you're old enough and can afford it, you can play here. This was the worst thing you can imagine. Now, with that as the geopolitical, social, and religious history of Ephesus, the best I can tell it, in the most entertaining way I can do it, in as short a period of time as I could possibly do it, let's look at the letter of Jesus to Ephesus and see if it makes it make more sense. Here we go. To The angel of the church of Ephesus write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Domitian is not what he claims. I am. Hey, you want to look at the person who's holding the seven stars in his hand? That's me. And I'm not using my power to oppress 99% of the world to enrich the 1%. I'm trying to lift the lowly to the level of the elite. I walk amongst the seven golden lampstands. In other words, I don't sit distant from the bro- story, judging, criticizing it. I engage the broken story right where it is and involve myself to make a better narrative. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Let's double and talk about that for a second. Words don't matter. How we picture words working matters. In this context, toleration of wicked people, was the legal and systemic abuse of underclassed people in the temple. Without that context, we tend to call anything we don't like wicked. So anything we don't like, God's fed up with that wickedness. Wickedness is just you don't like it. And then we call everything wicked. I had people with a straight face calling face masks wicked. Now face masks are annoying. They are. They're inconvenient, but a thin strip of cloth across your face to protect the most vulnerable is hardly wicked, right? I hate it, it's wicked. No, it's annoying, it's inconvenient. I don't like the fact that the Bruce Highway is still only two lanes all the way to Brisbane. I hate it, I'm gonna have to drive it tonight, and I promise you at least 10 times I'm gonna have to drop down to 40, and there'll be nobody working, I can promise you you look around you drive it. we are why am I driving 40 you're just standing there wicked flipping wicked I hate the speed limit of Bundaberg hate it it's almost like the speed limit was designed for the worst driver in the universe wicked see we tend to call anything we don't like wicked I want to be clear No toleration for wicked people was a group of Christians willing to go broke, defending the cause of the most vulnerable, saying, if it means we go broke, we are not raping underclassed people. We're not, we're not, hey, if if we go broke, we go broke. We're not doing that. That was much more than some Facebook high horse. This was, this was people willing to risk their lives, not to hurt anybody else. No toleration for wickedness. Keep going. Keep going that you've tested those who claims to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Like imagine that. Like these people are trying to stand up against all this and Jesus is like, yeah, I know, but consider how far you've fallen. Like normally you see that sentence, consider how far you've fallen. You've entered into idolatry, witchcraft, whatever. This was a failure to be loving. Like, consider how far you've fallen. Keep going. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, and in your like, like a temple of Artemis claims to be paradise, and on the tree of life, the tree of life is not found in Artemis' temple. Just go look at what's going on there. Tree of life for who? Paradise for who? No, the tree of life is found in the center of a Christ-centered group of people being loving in their world. That's life. That's paradise. That's what's going on there. The big story, Rome. The small story, Ephesus, Artemis, Domitian. Now, our story. Where do we go from here? What does this speak to us? Next slide, for the linear learners. This is a massive confrontation to the claim of Caesar. Jesus saying Domitian is not the center of the universe. Jesus walks amongst the lands, as opposed to Caesar, who's separate and supreme. Jesus is humble, engaging the broken story for the sake of the broken story. Next slide. What does he commend them for? Hard work. Where does the church go from here? This is not a time for a soft re-entry. This is a time to wake up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities. We have a 24-hour gift of God's breath today. May we position ourselves to the yes response, getting about everything we need to do in our world, doing good. May this church be 100% known for doing good in Bundaberg and no energy on controversies or quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Jesus commends them for their hard work, their position in their posture to the yes response never the no response he commends them for perseverance can you imagine the constant pressure of the imperial and artemis cult hey if you don't participate in that you'll go broke well if we go broke we go broke but we are not hurting people even if it means we go broke not doing that he commends and i want to tell you where's the church go from here the church had better get about some hard work this is not a time for self-reentry. We got some hard work for reframing some of the toxic images that have taken over the word Christian. It is a, I'm not going back into that. You can listen to the four messages, but we got some hard work to do and we, we need to be we need to be we need to be people who persevere. That grit I love the book by Angela Duckworth. It's just called Grit, and she's a Stanford researcher, and she showed that grit was the number one predictor of success over education, social economic status, all that, it's grit. It's not having a soft underbelly. It's not quitting every time there's an obstacle. It's not walking away and canceling every time we disagree with something. I I find it unbelievably hypocritical and hilarious that church people are the most anti-cancel culture. It goes something like this. These flippin' weak leftists that that, that can't talk tolerate one thing they disagree with. They can't, they're just going to cancel everybody without realizing the church was the original cancel culture. Like you say one thing we disagree with. We're not listening to anything else you have to say. Hold on. We got to be more solid, more tough, more, we have to have more grit than that. We need to persevere. We need to be learners. We need to hear people out. Hard work, perseverance. Next one. He commends them for no toleration for wickedness. They're gonna have anything to do with the abuse going on at the Artemis cult? Not doing that. Not doing that. Four. Next one. They upheld true apostleship. I don't want to get into that, but because we we're sort of, and I don't, I'm not joking about this. We're sort of past this. In those days, there was a debate as to whether Jesus actually had skin on or not. And 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 the people they weren't they weren't trying to they were trying to make Jesus better by saying he was so basically. He was so awesome, he couldn't have possibly been human. Like who could ever actually live that way? But what that does is that robs, that robs us of the opportunity to live like Jesus taught us to live. Because if he's right, so 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 in other words, they had solved the the Christians in Ephesus know Jesus was fully God and fully human. And then they endured hardship without growing weary. They didn't quit, they overcame obstacles. Now, you would think a group, hard work, perseverance, no toleration for wickedness, sound doctrine, right? What could Jesus possibly have against this group of people? That sounds like a pretty solid church. What kind of church are we? Hard work, perseverance, no toleration for wickedness. We uphold true and sound doctrine. Sounds like a good church to me, except for, next slide, they forsook their commitment to love. Here's what happened in this story. and I think man, if anything defines the church in America and Australia and other places, but I'm in Australia right now, let's deal with this, is that our biggest strength, we run the risk of it being our biggest weakness. In this story, their biggest strength, the power of their belief and perseverance became their biggest weakness. They lost their, here's what happened to them. They became a church of loveless orthodoxy thereby missing the whole point. They will know you are Christians by your beliefs. Oh, they, they will know you are Christians by your love. There's a whole book written. It's a must read. It's called 1 John. And 1 John, John, the same guy, by the way, that wrote Revelation, makes this point of What difference does it make if all your beliefs are correct, if everything you know about God doesn't lead you to being a more loving person? You sort of wasted your breath there. (sighs) What's Jesus saying to the church? You will never hear me say God said ever, and I'm not saying that now. I'm just asking you to consider that what Jesus said to Ephesus might be the same message we need to apply here, and that is... Have we prioritized our beliefs over the person? How far have we fallen? Ne- next slide. This is John. This is first John. That's what we're talking about. Um, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness, even if his doctrines are correct. And anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Ne- next one. Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. So I want us to truly, without any, please, if you're, if anybody's feeling any kind of finger pointing for me, I, 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 I humbly apologize. I don't want to come across like that at all because I'm dead center in the middle of this with you, okay? Um, I want us to wrestle with a couple of these things that Jesus is really getting into Ephesus for. Um, here's the questions. Can we proclaim the truth while protecting love at all cost? Or in our proclamations of truth, have we violated love? Please don't tell me I'm the only one that looks at social media and throws up in my mouth a little. And please don't tell me I'm the only one that that a Christian has said something that was technically true, but the way they said it made it sound horrible, right? Can we proclaim the truth What we also learn in this is that sacred objects never deliver. Things outside, stars, Domitian, Artemis, they tend to promise things they don't deliver. The only hope is the true tree of life which is found in the center of Christ and his lampstand. A people centered on Christ living in love for their world. Which leads me to this question, next slide. Have we lost our passion for being loving at the altar of belief and especially preference You know, more and more people are thinking their personal beliefs are non-negotiable. They are. Doctrines come. Doctrines go. People stay. God bless. I mean, in the history of the church, basically three or four things have remained. Jesus is the Christ. He was crucified. The resurrection's true. Everything else is sort of, there's this perspective, that perspective, this perspective, but, but Jesus being the Christ, him being crucified, defeating death, by resurrecting, that's the center uh, of the story. Um, your preference on music style is not non-negotiable. Our opinion about vaccines, hardly non-negotiable. I mean, people say, oh, this is just a known fact. If it was a known fact, there wouldn't be so much debate about it, okay? Like, seriously, it's, it's not, it's, it's actually what's happened is, is we've preferred our preference instead of the person. And then we violated love at the altar of belief or preference. It's like, yeah, but they believe wrong. As if, look, whoever the smartest person in this room is, we haven't even scratched one one thousandth of 1% of what God is. We have an eternity to grow. People matter. Like, Jesus called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Have we rationalized that away over what we perceive as orthodoxy? Uh, Let's just say it another way. Next slide. Have we put our faith in anything external? And has it ever really truly delivered? Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus so that we should discuss doctrine, but defend love at all costs. I think it's a good way to say it. Yeah, discuss doctrine, as long as it never violates, but defend love at all costs. Like, um, on a t- I'll close this with, with a quick story and then I want to read a passage to sort of sew this up. And, um, so a guy came to me within this year and If you're watching, sir, I'm not going to name you, but I honor you. Um, And here's why I honor him. He had a problem with a rumor he heard about me. And instead of sending an anonymous email to Wayne Alcorn or Errol or anybody else, he actually looked at my schedule, drove to the meeting, and asked for five minutes of my time. (laughs) I was blown away. Like, I was like, wait, you have a problem with me and you're actually gonna speak to me? You can have an hour of my time. I just like, that was just amazing. And his tone was so loving. He said, Shane, I've heard a rumor about you that has greatly distressed me, but I want to give you the benefit of the doubt and want to ask you about it instead of wondering, is that okay? Well, yeah. Then I started getting a little nervous, like, what, you're here, you know? <laughs> and he said, I, I, he said you have mattered more to my walk of faith than any other human. He said, your work is unbelievable. He said, then I heard this rumor, and I thought, go for it, man. He said, I, I, I heard that you did the state conference for the Seventh-day Adventist, and you spoke for the Catholics in Sydney, and you did a conference for the Baptist." And uh, you did something in an Anglican church and had to wear a robe. And, uh, and you did the conference for the ACC, the AOG, Equippers, Elam. Um, I've heard you speak for all these people. I was waiting for the distressing part. So I said, uh, he stopped. And he said, is that true? And I went, Yes. I said, if you don't mind, I just honor you, sir, and I honor your heart here, but why is that distressing to you? And he said, what's distressing is, is that the person who helped me with my faith the most turns out he doesn't believe anything. He just fits in wherever he goes, just some chameleon, you know, just hangs out everywhere he goes, you know, and fits right in. And I said, oh, he goes, let me ask you a question. He said, do you agree with the Seventh-day Adventist? I said, I didn't know that was a thing. Agree with them? I never even considered that. I like them. I said, what's not to agree with? He said, they worship on Saturday. I said, I know. That's not the most dangerous thing about them. The most dangerous thing about them is they're vegans. I was there all weekend, did six sessions and ate 70,000 grams of fiber. You try that. Got tired of wiping my butt. It's horrible. He said, no, I'm serious. Like, where do you... Okay, all right, all right, Shane. Where do you draw the line? Like, is there any line to be drawn? Glad you asked. <laughs> I love this. Same guy. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his command and do what pleases him. Now... We tend to read the word keep and hear obey. It's not obey, he goes to great lengths. They go, no one obeys all the commands. The word keep there does not mean to obey. It means to protect. It's an ancient Greek word for a castle keep. It's where you protected the vulnerable in times of attack. We use it today all the time. In ice hockey, there's a goal, keeper. In soccer, there's a keeper. In childcare, you say, would you keep my baby for a second? That doesn't mean obey the baby. Means protect the baby. We use it all the time. So let's read it that way. But we have confidence with God and receive from him anything we ask because we protect his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command. This is what we're supposed to protect to believe in the name of Jesus, uh, to believe in the name of his son Jesus, and to love one another as he commanded us. Keep going. The one who protects God's commands. Which command? Believe in Jesus and love for one another lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit he gave us. Where do I draw the line? Belief in Jesus, love for one another. Where does heritage draw the line? Belief in Jesus, love for one another. In this next season of the church, where does the church, where should the church draw the line? Belief in Jesus. Love for one another. All this other tangential nonsense, are you kidding me? Yeah, discuss it, but where do we draw the line? We protect love and belief in Jesus. But Shane, believe in Jesus. Love for one another. But Shane, they're vaxxed, yeah. Belief in Jesus. Love for one another. But Shane, they're not, yeah. Belief in Jesus. Love for one another. But Shane, they think revelation is about, yeah, belief in Jesus, love for one another. But Shane, they worship on Saturday. Yeah, belief in Jesus, love for one another. But they're vegans. I know. Belief in Jesus, love for one another. One of them gave me a brownie, a vegan brownie. And I felt like it was that big, but it had 70 grams of fiber in it. Come on. No one should do that. <laughs> belief in Jesus. <laughs> love for one another. Where have we protected stuff that we were never called to protect? It's just our preference. It makes us feel safer. We're actually called to protect belief in Jesus. And love. Where does the church need to go from here? We better lose our love affair with our doctrines and rekindle our love affair for the people yeah. to be known for doing good in our world and no energy on controversies or quarrels about the law because they're unprofitable and useless. Let's say it this way, next slide. Is there any person that I need to rebuild the loving connection with despite a difference of opinion? Is there any person I've broke relationship with? And if I'm honest, it didn't have anything to do with belief in Jesus or love for one another. It was just a difference of opinion. May the world, if they see us in conversation, may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about our opinion. Let him who has ears, let him hear. Lord, would you give us the ears to hear, the courage to act. Just have a brief moment of contemplation. Have I divided relationship over anything other than belief in Jesus and love for one another? Have I preferred my rightness over my love for the person. Lord, give us the courage to act and be doers of the word and not just hearers, amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your night. Hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I love Bundaberg, I love you. You're my Bundaberg family. Until I see you again, may we discuss doctrine, but let's all remember to defend love with everything we have. Grace and peace, everybody.